Agencies are kicking off Cybersecurity Awareness Month with a new directive to routinely scan their networks for new devices and potential cyber vulnerabilities. The mandate comes after recent high-profile cyber incidents exposed a lack of visibility into activity on federal networks. For more, we turn to Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Justin, how you doing? Hey, Eric. How's it going? Pretty good. So what is this new directive that we're hearing all about? So on Monday, CISA issued a binding operational directive for improving asset visibility and vulnerability detection on federal networks. And the goal basically is to enhance visibility into the different devices and other things that are operating on those networks and associated vulnerabilities. And the mandate directs agencies by April 3rd of next year to start doing automated asset discovery every seven days. So every week they have to be scanning their networks in an automated fashion to determine what the different laptops and uh, cell phones and other things that are on that network. And then they have to identify and report suspected vulnerabilities every 14 days. So during a call with reporters on Monday, CISA Director Jen Easterly highlighted this new directive. She said it was kind of influenced by past incidents, especially the SolarWinds cyber incident of uh, December 2020. If you've heard us talk at all about this, we have said consistently that we are on an urgent path to gain visibility into risks facing federal civilian networks. This was obviously a gap illuminated by SolarWinds, and we've provided agencies with necessary tools and put in place infrastructure to gain a more granular understanding of federal cybersecurity risks. And really, this BOD takes the next step by establishing baseline requirements for agencies to identify those assets and vulnerabilities. All right. And that was CISA Director Jen Easterly. And once agencies have this data, Justin, what should they do with it? Yeah, so they they should be actually giving that data to CISA. Uh, Also, by April 3rd of next year, they have to set up an automated reporting system where they they send these detected vulnerabilities to the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Dashboard, CDM program, which is not a new program, but doing so in reporting these vulnerabilities in an automated fashion might be new for for some agencies. And they should also develop the ability to actually identify uh, any any new vulnerabilities uh, on new assets that CISA asks them to within 72 hours of receiving a request from CISA. So essentially CISA says, hey guys, there's this new vulnerability that's out there. We need you to address it. Within about three days, agencies need to be able to scan their networks and say, yep, okay, we're good to go. Or actually we have to go and patch this or something. And the, the data will essentially allow CISA to maintain some sort of automated oversight and monitoring of all federal civilian networks here going forward. Easterly talked about how that's really a big step up for CISA and its role as the lead for operational uh, cybersecurity across the federal government. This is a movement essentially to allow CISA in its role as operational lead for federal cybersecurity to manage the federal cybersecurity as an enterprise. And that's incredibly important and really reflects our rapidly maturing role. And once again, that's CISA Director Jen Easterly. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. So what else is DHS focusing on when it comes to cybersecurity? Yeah, so in addition to kind of focusing on the down and in federal agency side, DHS is also churning out a steady diet of new cyber regulations for critical infrastructure sectors, you know, the private sector. Uh, The Coast Guard is actually preparing to release new cyber hygiene regulations for the maritime sector at some point over the next month. The Transportation Security Administration has already issued several cybersecurity directives for the pipeline industry, 
for the aviation sector and for the freight and rail sectors, uh, respectively. Uh, that happened in the wake of the Colonial Pipeline ransomware incident last May. Uh, and then the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, again, is also developing new cyber incident reporting rules for all critical infrastructure sectors. So Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas uh, also spoke on this call with reporters Monday. He talked about how this is really an inflection point when it comes to how the government handles cybersecurity. But with all these regulations, they're also working closely with industry. We are very mindful of the fact that there are different regulators with different priorities. We have launched an effort to understand as best we can the different priorities, where perfect alignment might not reside, and how best we can harmonize whatever reporting requirements are instituted so that we have as uniform an approach to cybersecurity reporting as is possible. So where does CISA stand with this new incident reporting rule? We've seen other agencies try to implement something similar in the energy sector and whatnot. Where is CISA at? CISA just last month released a request for information as it starts to develop the reporting rules, uh, asking for feedback and a whole range of policy questions about what kind of entities within the critical infrastructure sectors should actually be required to report cyber incidents? What's the threshold of a cyber incident that needs to be reported by these companies? Uh, they actually have another 12 months to put out an interim rule, so they have some time here to actually develop this regulation. CISA also started hosting public listening sessions around the country this month to get feedback on the forthcoming regulations. And in addition to these incident reporting rules, CISA is also developing new cyber performance goals for critical infrastructure sectors. So there's a lot of cyber regulations really coming down the pipe from DHS, in addition to the ones that already have come out over the past year. Mayorkas was asked how DHS will continue to kind of balance industry concerns without while avoiding actually regulatory capture, you know, where industry is able to water these regulations down. Here's Mayorkas's response. The regulations that we promulgate are informed by, not dictated by the sectors that we regulate. We are mindful of the fact that they could bring real life uh, considerations to bear of which we might not be fully cognizant. And therefore it's our responsibility to engage before we promulgate our regulations, but we don't find ourselves to be beholden to a lowest common denominator, but rather we need to drive cybersecurity hygiene and advance the mission. And again, that's Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And he also added the fact that DHS's cyber regulations have been both praised for their sensitivity to industry concerns and also criticized by industry in some cases for imposing obligations on them, some burdens on them. It shows that DHS is acting independently here and isn't veering too far one way or the other. So we'll have to see how that continues as these other regulations continue to drip out. All right. So as the cyber world continues to develop, I know you'll keep us up to speed on what's going on. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thank you very much. You got it. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when. I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say, there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs. And he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. 
And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? 
You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.